Science Friday is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancer patients. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com slash air. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A little bit later, we'll be taking your calls about evolution. What would you like to know about evolution? Well, you can ask an expert. Yeah, our number, 844-724-8255-844-SIDE-TALK. But first, remember the Orson Welles radio drama and then the movie War of the Worlds where the Martians try to conquer the Earth? They actually start winning and then mysteriously... They die. And it turns out they die from what? The common cold to which they have no immunity. Science fiction. Yeah, well, what about reality? What's to prevent just the opposite from happening? I mean, a a space probe returning from space to Earth, bringing foreign microbes to our planet. I bring this up because next month, NASA's OSIRIS-REx probe will bring the first sample of an asteroid back to Earth. The capsule is projected to land in Utah's desert, and scientists hope the sample of asteroid dust on board will help them get a snapshot of our solar system maybe four billion years ago. But is there any risk to bringing back material from space to Earth when we don't entirely know what's in it? Oh, oh, let me give you the flip side. What about when we send missions to other planets or moons like Mars or Europa? Could we accidentally contaminate them with Earth microbes? Here with me now is someone who thinks a lot about this question and questions like this. Dr. Nick Bernardini is NASA's Planetary Protection Officer based at NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me, Ira. Thank you for coming. Let's talk about a serious uh, Cirrus Rex projected to return to Earth next month. As far as we know, there's no life there. But how do we ensure that anything from that asteroid does not contaminate us? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So uh, for planetary protection, we have a whole series of international scientists and engineers that think about this on a regular basis uh, called Committee of Space Research. 
Um, and so they put forth uh, international guidelines um, and current um, uh, current uh, understandings together and frameworks for uh, what exactly is the type of potential science um, that can be conducted on these target bodies as well as um, the type of uh, potential for life on these target bodies as we go um, uh, as, as we go explore the solar system and so we know that um, uh, OSIRIS-REx is what we refer to as an unrestricted Earth return sample. So this is uh, of lowest likelihood of, of life um, uh, or harboring life. Um, and so we uh, actually don't have any restrictions for bringing that uh, asteroid material back, uh, much like, um, you know, comets or, or, or uh, yeah, much like our, our comets. Um, and other asteroids uh, that we would bring back. Hmm. How do we know, Dr. Benardini, how do we know what to look for if, it, if it's yeah. something we're not used to? Yeah, so it, this is exactly one of the conversations we have all the time. Uh, what is life? Uh, wh what, do we, what do we think about life in the unknown, unknown space? Um, and so uh, we, we have a lot of conversations uh, in the science community and international community about um, you know, sample safety assessment. Um, really, what would we look for with life? Um, and, th and that gets down to, you know, understanding uh, what life looks like from a physical or molecular perspective, uh, what it looks like from an organic perspective. And so we, we use all of these clues that we can about life as we know it to infer about potential of, of life on other planets. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, on Mars, for example, we see those signs, um, but on, uh, uh, you know, other asteroids such as o Osiris Rex and, and Bennu, we, we, we don't really... We, we don't see that, um, and so we're able to make those um, uh, guidelines uh, more unrestricted versus having them more restricted like we would for our Mars sample return mission. Yeah, we, we have been exploring space since, what, the, the 1950s. Have we improved in our space exploration techniques so that our spacecraft do not unintentionally bring back alien microbes, such as on OSIRIS-REx? Yeah, so we've definitely improved um, both in our obviously engineering capabilities as well as our science knowledge, um, and all of those directly feed into our policies. A lot of our approaches that we take, uh, for example, um, our understanding of of clean room technologies and how we make sure that um, we can leverage these clean rooms, which control particulates and organic molecules. Um, so when we go to life on other planets, we don't inadvertently detect our own life because we built the spacecraft dirtier than what we thought. Um, that's just one of the examples of, of the types of advancements that we're using nowadays. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I started off mentioning a, a science fiction movie and sci-fi movies we see, in them we see extreme examples of what could happen when an alien pathogen infects Earth. People think this is not real because it's just something they see in the movies, but you think of this every day. Absolutely. Um, uh, we don't think of it in terms of, you know, uh, Hollywood or, or kind of the sci-fi angle, um, but really more of it a, a scientific and evidence-driven um, perspective in that, you know, on Mars itself, we, we know that, you know, for example, the, 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 the samples that we're collecting right now are going to be lower likelihood to harbor life than, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a deeper depth or cave type of sample. Um, so, so we have these scientific inferences that allow us to help develop that risk posture for thinking about what we need to do to ensure that the public is safe and that our 
um, spacecraft are clean when we go uh, to visit other planets. Let's talk about that visiting other planets because one planet we visited a lot is is Mars, and I remember going way back into the seventies. Um, Viking were these were these planets were these probes pristine when they landed on the planet? So um, that's a common misnomer is that you know is that we send sterile or clean spacecraft. Um, matter of fact, uh, we can't given. Um, you know, the fact that we humans have life and the rooms that we assemble and test and launch operations all um, have um, some bit of, of um, biological uh, presence, um, although that's not saying that it's completely dirty. We, we highly control these. Um, we're talking our spacecraft are less than half a million uh, organisms per, per spacecraft. Um, that's compared to uh, think about uh, perhaps a probiotic that you might take on a regular basis. That probiotic is 40 times more organisms than what we allow on our spacecraft um, to go to Mars. Yeah, but we, we when we went to the moon, the Apollo astronauts left an enormous amount of human poop on the moon, didn't they? So, yeah, so that's um, cer certainly something that we have to mitigate uh, in thinking about when we introduce humans um, is what we do with you know, human waste streams and what the microbial transport could be just because of those humans being present. Mm -hmm. And let's imagine an astronaut gets sick in space. Just sky with me right now. How sure, do scientists sure. determine, how do they determine if someone who gets sick in space, it's because of in-flight sickness, a pathogen from Earth, or, or maybe a planet, some other pathogen that snuck in? How, how would you know that? Yeah, so, so that's exactly the type of work that we're doing right now with our, our knowledge gaps and planning for Moon to Mars. Um, and so, you know, we have the luxury right now on the International Space Station that if an astronaut gets sick, you know, we have several days we can get that astronaut back down to Earth for medical attention. Um, you know, once we start talking about lunar um, surface missions on the upcoming years. Um, you know, some of that may be upwards of a week before we can get that astronaut back to Earth. And then even Mars is, is particularly more um, time consuming from orbital dynamics perspective. We're talking upwards of 600 plus days, um, depending on when that astronaut were to get sick. And so we have to think about that a little bit different um, than what we do currently with our International Space Station astronauts. Do, do you have special testing kits that would quickly diagnose that? Yeah, so that's what we're looking at uh, developing uh, with the Office of Chief Health and Medical um, at NASA. And so we need to, you know, kind of work through um, from a planetary protection perspective and a built environments perspective if it's, um, you know, a, a human associated organism or if it's something from Mars. And so we're working to fill those knowledge gaps and, and to develop a framework for that kind of decision making. Um, you know, within this next decade. One question uh, that I always get, and I've been talking about this for quite some time, is from people who do not think we should be exploring other planets. They think we should be focusing on the problems here on Earth. It's, it's, it's a good point, given all of our problems with climate change. Why do you think we should explore other planets? And why should we be so concerned about bringing our environment over there? Well, I think... From a, uh, a perspective of, of going and exploring, I think obviously it's human nature to go explore. Um, and, and I think from you know having other planets and being able to have that curiosity, um, I, I think that's essentially inherent in our human DNA. 
Um, I, there also is a lot of um, uh, potential spin-offs um, that we've seen uh, throughout the years with NASA products that have that we might need for space that put into um, you know our daily lives and impact Earth. Um, you know, I'm thinking Velcro. Also, um, perhaps uh, a lot of our environmental life support systems that we have for water cleaning coming up. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, cross pollination and cross potential for yeah. um, you know the technologies to be fed forward into uh, improving our Earth life um, that that we see on a regular basis. Do so. you think Do you think we need a better technology for sterilizing? To use a better word, the the craft we spe- we send out, especially for going to Europa or some other place. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily the the sterilization. I think it's more along the lines of how do we keep it clean. That's really the hardest job that we have. Um, you know, so whether that's uh, thinking about um, different types of bio barriers or or protective shields after we keep it clean, um, perhaps it's um, uh, more stringent uh, types of of clean processing. Mm. Um, and, and we we're leveraging heavy right now on um, you know the medical sterilization industry. Uh, with high heat, vapor hydrogen peroxide, um, you know, uh, solvent types of cleaning methods, uh, very similar to, um, you know, med device, for example, or, or pharmaceuticals. Yeah, we look, uh, we look forward to talking more with you and learning more about this. Thank you, Dr. Bernardini, for being with us. Welcome. Thank you. Nick Bernardini is the Planetary Protection Officer at NASA. We have to take a break, and when we come back... We're going to back to, uh, yeah, let's go back to the biology class for a crash course on the science of evolution. What would you like to know that you always wanted to ask? We have an expert that's Ask an Expert this hour on Science Friday, our number 84. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the Earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. Four seven two four eight two five five eight four four side talk. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're heading back into the classroom for the rest of the hour. A bit of biology 101. I mean, most of us were taught about evolution in science class growing up, right? But how much do you actually remember? And what questions do you have now that you were afraid to ask? teacher back then. Well, my next guest has written a whole book about the science of evolution, how it has changed everything from bacteria to humans. So it's time for you, our listeners, to ask an expert about evolution. There are no stupid questions, the only questions that don't get asked. Our number 844-724-8255, 844-SCITALK, 
or you can uh, tweet us at SciFry. Let me introduce my guest, Dr. Prasanta Chakrabarty, author of Explaining Life Through Evolution, which will be out next week on August 8th. He's also the curator of fishes at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. I don't think we've ever had a curator of fishes on the program before. Welcome to Science Friday. Welcome back. Thanks. Thanks, Ira. It's great to be on the show with you. It, it's, it's nice to have you. Let's start by talking about what inspired you to write this book, because I know you live in, live in Louisiana, a state where anti-evolution science education is law. Was that partly what inspired you? Yeah, absolutely. That was probably the first thing that got me putting pen to paper was uh, these anti-evolution laws that were passed by uh, the legislature from Bobby Jindal era, and they're still there. Yeah. Is this an American phenomenon? I mean, the question of evolution and how to teach it? It's not just American, but it is sort of uniquely uh, something special about uh, some some countries for sure. So India just uh, stopped uh, teaching evolution at the K through 12 level. Uh, Turkey uh, recently um, stopped, uh, basically banned teaching evolution as well. But the way we teach it and the way we've dealt with it in the United States is sort of state by state has been uh, pretty unique. Hmm. You know, you have found that you mentioned this in the book because I can relate to this. You talk about that some people have a fixed mindset about something. Let's say they don't believe in evolution. There's virtually nothing you can do about it, right? No amount of data will change their minds. They have a belief system of what you call mistrust. And as I say, we have found that here talking with people on this program. Tell us about what you have found. Yeah, and and that's always been my goal is not to convince somebody of, of one thing or the other just to explain that evolution's how we understand and explain the origins and diversity of life and this is how scientists understand it this is how I understand it and I can't make somebody's belief system collapse in a way that they need uh, to to see the the science of evolution the same way I do so I, I don't go out to sort of change their mind just to get them to understand and hopefully that might start a little crack in their uh, understanding to, to get them to think about science a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So to gain trust first, I think, is the most important thing before they start to understand what you do and, and how yeah. you understand it. Gain, getting trust is a hard thing. <laughs> yeah, it sure <laughs> it's is. Very hard. Uh, there is a famous mural, I think we've all seen it, uh, called the March of Progress, mm -hmm. depicting evolution as a progression from monkey to chimp, but then to a hunched caveman leading directly to modern man. You show it in your book, and you say this image has done more harm than good trying to better explain evolution to people. Why do you say that? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting figure that's usually the shorthand people use when they say evolution. And it shows this progression from sort of what we expect to be lesser beings to us. And so it looks like evolution is goal-oriented, which it is not. It looks like we're the top of uh, you know the pinnacle of evolution which we're not you know there is no pinnacle there is no goal it's much more of a fanning out from that origins of life into the diversity of life we see today so you know an amoeba or uh, you know a, a cardinal that we see today is also the the descendants of that first life and and it wasn't leading to us monkeys aren't evolving into us mm -hmm. um, we are apes we have common ancestry Common that's answer. very different. Different. Yeah. 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 How, how do we know that evolution is real? Let's get that right out of the way quickly. 
Sure. For, for me, the best evidence is we can look at uh, what we call the tree of life, this connection of relationships between all life on earth through the DNA that we can examine and compare and study. And we can put fossils on that tree of life so we can place where, where fossils that we find uh, almost every day fit within that uh, three and a half billion years of life on earth. So for me, the evidence of evolution is all around us. It's in our body. You know, we don't have a perfect body. Uh, in fact, we have many uh, what I'd call flaws or, or not perfect, perfectly fit uh, yeah. elements, including our backs and knees. So yeah. for me, the evidence is everywhere. Well, we, we have some, I, I said that I'm going to give my listeners a chance to ask everything they wanted to know, and they have so many questions, so let's <laughs> let's go right to them. Matt in Rome, let's Georgia. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Matt, are you Hello. there? Hey there. Go yes, ahead. Ira, hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Great. Go ahead. So I love reading about human evolution, and I find it interesting to read about Neanderthal pop- populations that lived alongside Homo sapien populations. Um, and then, from my understanding, we're considered two different species. But then I also read that we were uh, mixing with the two populations, and we even carry Neanderthal genes with us today. Um, so my question is, uh, how do we know that they were two different populations? And if so, how can we have Neanderthal genes in us? Yeah, great question. Great question. What, what do you say about that, Prosanta? <laughs> yeah, it is a, indeed a great question, Matt. Um, so in part, you know, there, our closest living relatives are chimpanzees, but our closest relatives that we know about in the history of time were Neanderthals. So we are Homo sapiens, and they were Homo Neanderthalus. And there are, in fact, many people in the U.S., uh, people of European descent, that have about 2% of their, de- of their genome has Neanderthal in it. And how does that happen? Well, we have not one or two Neanderthal ancestors, but many, maybe many. That's how uh, you can have those remnants of uh, another species' DNA in our own genome. So mm. there was a bit of, let's say, hybridization going on between uh, our species. There's also some controversy about whether Neanderthals were, in fact, a different species. Perhaps they were, we were so close uh, that uh, they don't deserve to be in their own distinct species and there might be a subspecies of homo sapiens but for now i think most people are going with them hmm. being separate but that there was quite a bit of hybridization maybe twenty-five thousand years ago or so in europe matt does that answer your question that's great thank you so much thank you you're welcome all right let's let's stay with the the, the flow here uh let's go to fred in bellingham washington hi fred w- welcome to uh let me sure i got you on the air welcome to science friday Oh, I may, I may have, uh, let me try Fred there. Fred, hi, welcome to Science Friday. Um, am I on? Yes, you're on. All right. I've been wondering for some time whether life has emerged more than once on Earth. Is there a unique evolutionary line? Hmm. Oh, deep thoughts today on the show. Uh, I, wonder that, I wonder that same thing. So we know that we can connect all life on Earth living today to a single common ancestor. However, you know, life probably had many spurts and starts and maybe some misfalls before that. So we can trace the earliest life on our Earth um, from fossils to about three and a half billion years ago. But maybe in the time between the origin of the Earth, about a billion years before that, and that three and a half billion years, there were multiple origins. And what we see today is the who survived 
uh, that uh, from that one mm. common ancestor. So maybe, I mean, it'd be great to know. We, we just don't know. We know that life evolved at least once, but perhaps more than once even before that. Cool. Uh, we have a, a, a comment, a question from Twitter. Uh, when does the line get crossed from a new species? Jake in Little Rock wants to know. Yeah, that's a case-by-case basis. So if we look at populations that are diverging, if they are close together, if they don't have a a geographic barrier, sometimes uh, that can take a very long time. Other times there are species like ferns that can uh, duplicate the number of chromosomes they have and and in an instant they're a new species essentially. Hmm. So it just depends. It depends on the, the group and how reproduction happens and how much hybridization, like we talked about Neanderthals and humans and Homo sapiens. So it depends, um, and it's not always something that everybody agrees on. Right, right. Well, speaking of agreeing on, uh, has our understanding of evolution evolved? I mean, let's say since Darwin's on the origin of species? Sure, absolutely, yeah. Darwin, the great evolutionary mind, didn't know about genetics, and he didn't know about hormones, and he didn't know about many of the things that we use to study evolution today. So a large part of what he explained was natural selection and Mm -hmm. adaptation, but he couldn't explain neutral evolution, which is genetic drift and and the other mechanisms that we know and understand today about how species change and evolve over time. How much do in common do we humans, we modern humans, have with with, let's say, algae, bacteria, single-cell organisms? For me, that's one of the most amazing things about uh, us in particular and, and the life on Earth that we see today is how much of our genes are shared. So I think there's something like uh, 60% of our genes that we have, and we only have about 20,000, 25,000 genes, are found in things like banana. You know, there's <laughs> so much shared genes, genes that we got from viruses, uh, you know, right. and bacteria, there's so much crossover. And, and so, you know, onions and strawberries have more DNA than us. And, and how that makes us us and how it makes them that is, is just the marvel of, of life. And yeah. so yeah. there's a lot of cover. <laughs> with, you know, with, I, I always fa- I learned that this last week I was up in Maine at the Scudic Institute uh, and it was I had a great time with those folks up there and I was watching what they call rockweed which is uh-huh. the seaweed that grows on all those rocks in Maine and a scientist was telling me that people don't don't know that seaweed is is not a plant it's a, <laughs> it's an algae and in fact because it is an algae it's closer genetically to humans than it is to plants. And I thought that just blew my mind. <laughs> and mushrooms. Mushrooms are close. You know, it's like fungi. The whole tree, you know, it's, a, it's well, an unbelievable and it's amazing. Well, it is because you say in your book that nothing in biology makes sense in the, except in the light of evolution. And that's sort of what uh, you're talking about. Yeah, if you attribute that quote to me, every evolutionary biologist is going to roll their eyes. But I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. It's from uh, Theodosius Dubzhansky. And uh, yes, it's true, though. Every time I think about any part of biology... If we don't think about how we've changed and transformed over time and how life has has moved us to where we are, it's very difficult to explain without evolution. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones before we go to the break. Let's go to Chris in Cleveland. Hi, Chris. Hey, Ira. How are you all doing? Hi. Nice. Thanks to have you. You got a question for us? Yes, sir, I do. 
I just have a quick question, and maybe you guys can just answer it for me. How come so many smart scientists believe in evolution? Question mark scenarios as to how man actually came about. Australopithecus pilled down man, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon. But yet none of them refer to anything in the Bible, especially in the beginning of Genesis, where it talks about where mankind came from. And I'm quite certain that God didn't create us to be swinging from trees or walking around as apes. So do you have an actual answer for that? Good question. Why it seems to be so complicated. But when we go to Revelation, I'm sorry, Genesis, the answer is right there. Okay, good question. Uh, what? Do, what? Do, let's see if we can get an answer. What do you have to say sure. about that, Prasanta? Sure, and, and people have their understanding of, of how um, our origins came from, and some have a, a biblical view, and, and I don't want to change anybody's minds about that. And we could stop studying everything if we just believe in our religious texts and, and leave it at that. And so in Genesis, you know, if you follow the Genesis version, uh, you can accept that, but also have a, a scientific curiosity, which many scientists hold both religious beliefs and, and scientific ones. And so our origins can both be something that includes the three and a half billion years of our understanding of how life has changed over time and includes us being mammals and being apes and being vertebrates. And also if they want to believe a, an origin that includes a creator, I, I have no qualms with that and many scientists don't. We don't need to you know, have pick or choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. I think it's best to, you know, let people believe how they want to believe, but also understand how the scientists understand their own work. Chris, I hope that answers your question. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Our number is 844-724-8255. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking uh, about evolution. When did, when did you, uh, Dr. Chakrabarty, get interested in this? Yeah, and... I always loved animals. I'm a New York City kid, and I grew up and go to the Bronx Zoo and the American Museum of Natural History and look up at the dinosaurs and wonder where they went and where they came from. And uh, that led me down a, a, this slippery slope where I am now to studying <laughs> evolution at uh, Louisiana State University. And, and, and you're a little, as you said at the beginning, you're upset that the, the evolution can't be taught the way you think it should be in schools. Yeah, and I, and I fear that it's going to be worse. There's uh, some uh, uh, you know, legislation that may come down throughout the United States that um, you know, may change how we study the separation of church and state is best definitely being challenged, and I think that's unfortunate. I think science should only be taught, uh, science should be taught in the science classroom and nothing else, and any other intrusions of of non-scientific thought will, will muddy our understanding. And mm -hmm. so it should just be science being taught. Quick question from Joe in Orlando. Hi, Joe. Joe, are you there? Hello? Yes. Hi there. I just had a real quick question for you. I say the extent of my uh, education and evolution went back in high school in Florida where it's uh, watching Inherit the Wind in the Scopes trial. Mm -hmm. So forgive the, uh, that's all I got. Quickly. So we see <laughs> Apes now out in the zoo. Will they become humans at one point down the line? Okay. Take my call there. Okay. Uh, no, they won't. Um, like we talked about the the depiction of, of uh, primates turning into humans today. That's not how evolution works. Uh, we share common ancestry, but things 
alive today are not turning into humans. Their evolution is progressive, but everything is moving in its own direction and not necessarily towards a, a goal. So there was one point in common ancestry that there was a branching off instead of a following after. Would that be? Exactly. So, yeah. so different, different animals branched off and, and, and chimpanzees did not become humans. They just branched off into it. They had a common ancestor. Yeah, indeed. It's hard, years ago. It's hard to overcome some of these biases that we were, you know, taught in school and grew up with. But we're, we're trying to do it. Our number, 844-724-8255. We have to take a break. And when we come back, we'll take more of your calls about the... WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. For so many black people, the whiz feels like home. <laughs> The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Evolution with Prasanta Chakrabarty, author of Explaining Life Through Evolution. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're continuing our Ask an Expert segment, and this time about the science of evolution with Dr. Prosanta Chakrabarty. We're taking your questions. What do you want to know about evolution? Our number, 844-724-8255, if you'd like to, to, to talk with us, and we certainly welcome you. Dr. Chakrabarty is author of Explaining Life Through Evolution, which is out uh, next week on August 8th. Uh, Dr. Chakrabarty, do you find it difficult to explain evolution to people? I don't. I, I try to think about my own understanding and how I came to learn and, and appreciate how beautiful the ideas are of evolution. And, and so I like sharing it, and, and I, it moved me to write this book, and I hope people like it and understand it in a way that uh, I do now. And uh, mm -hmm. I hope that works. Let's go to the phones. Elijah in Cleveland. Hi, Elijah. Hey there. Can you hear me, Elijah? Hello? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so my question is, um, we're, we're talking about, uh, you, know, um, you know, chimpanzees or you know, apes evolving into humans. There's a very popular video out there that you may have seen where AI predicted what human evolution is going to be in which it goes from uh you know ape to man really quickly and then it goes from man to machine and then it goes from machine to just a symbiotic uh all you see at the end of it are you know tubes and pipes and wires you know there 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 aren't even robots anymore 
where it just seemed like it would be a symbiotic collective mm. of what the human mind created. How do they and eat? The whole, world would, <laughs> the, the whole world would be nothing but wires and tubes and is AI going to benefit the planet kind of thing? Uh, did, yeah, okay. I get, I get your drift. I get the drift. Let me let me get a thank. Thank you for calling, Elijah. Let me get a, a comment. Sure, um, uh, I'll stick with organic evolution. You know how we understand uh, our own bodies changing, and and uh, um, there's a great book by Scott Solomon about future humans, and he goes into that a little bit. Um, I'll say that um, you know we the beginning of that question started with. You know, we turn from chimpanzees into humans, and again, that's that's not how it works. Yeah. We share yeah. common ancestry. Yeah, uh, not all, <clears throat> excuse me, not not only as we talk about anti-evolution crusaders being in many states, but many states have been dealing with anti-LGBTQ bills, mm. and you argue in your book that variations in sex and gender and sexuality can all be explained by evolution. Tell us about that. Sure, and I'll just start by saying, you know, first, you don't need an evolutionary biologist to tell you that the spectrum of, and diversity of life uh, includes this, uh, the spectrum of genders and sexes and sexualities. We can be nice to people and accept people for who they are without an evolutionary biologist telling us, but there is this, uh, we know um, across the diversity of life of, of the species we know that there are different genders, there's different sexes and species, um, you know, not everything is male or female. There's many intersex uh, people. Mm. There are uh, lots of um, ways that we can explain uh, gender that are dealing with hormones and not necessarily something that matches your chromosomes or, or what's in your pants, right? And so our understanding of, of human sexuality and, and genders is, is different than our understanding of uh, how we test and study life on earth but it's something that i think people often are asking you know why do we have people um who aren't part of the reproductive um uh, group mm -hmm. of people you know when they think about evolution and so for me it's it's better for people to have an understanding of of this diversity of genders and sexualities and like, be accepting of it and not use evolution as some way to discredit mm -hmm. uh, how people live their lives. You have an example uh, that might be a little shocking to our listeners who are fans of the movie, the movie Finding Nemo about how some fish have evolved, clownfish in particular. Yeah, clownfishes are sequentially hermaphroditic. So they all start off as males, and then the biggest one becomes the big dominant female and bears the next generation. So if you remember the opening scene of Finding Nemo, when Nemo's mother gets eaten, um, what would happen was be Marlin, the larger clownfish surviving, would become the large female. Perhaps then, you know, an, another individual male, maybe Nemo himself, would start a new family that way. And wow. that's so, there's some strange things happening in, in the animal kingdom for sure, that, or we would consider it strange from our human perspective. And we don't have anything like that in, in humans, but there are plenty of examples of um, this sort of non-binary yeah. yeah. roles of sex in, uh, in the animal kingdom. Let's go to uh, Rebecca in Pensacola, Florida. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Hi, go ahead. Um, I am a teacher, and I was just wondering how 
your expert, whose name I do not know because I tuned in a little tardy to the program, could explain um, how I could explain to children. Like, for example, one of our, in our elementary curriculum, we talk about giraffes and how, you know, they evolved to have the longer neck so that they could reach the, you know, the food at the taller branches. And, and like, that's explained to children. But then they, you know, proceed to ask other questions. And I'm trying to figure out how we can dumb it down without having them go home and say, you know, Miss so-and-so was teaching me that, you know, what I learned at church is, is not true. Um, and I did hear the caller who called in about Genesis, and I, I completely understand that. But I'm trying to, um, to kind of dumb it down for children without getting super super duper technical, but without um, causing, you know, parents to call the front office and say that, you know, we're not doing the right thing. So how you can teach it without without saying the word evolution in it? No, no, I don't. I, well, and I hate to say that because, I mean, the curriculum has the word evolution and the standards do teach, you know, um, well, and it's more probably adaptations, like animal adaptations and how they're adaptations have evolved over time in order to help them, you mm -hmm. know, adapt to their environment and survive and, you know, survival of the fittest and all of that. So, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to figure out a way so that when they, because they're, you know, kids are inquisitive and curious and, and they want to know more, especially if this is something they haven't been taught. So I'm trying to figure out a way to, to kind of dumb it down for children. Okay. Uh, you're, well, let me just tell you, you're talking to Prasanta Chakrabarti, who, uh, wrote the book Explaining Life Through Revolutions. I know you tuned in late, and that's who you're talking to. Just wanted to be polite on that. Yes, uh, Prasanta, what we got, do you have a suggestion? I, I do, and I think actually the caller did a, a great job at explaining uh, evolution there. Um, I like when I'm talking to children, I like to couch it in terms of competition, at least uh, the adaptation, natural selection part. And so I like to think of there being many individuals being born and, and you can talk to the kids about their siblings and and how they compete for resources even within the house and so you know if they want to have the most cookies or if they want to uh, gain access to something being taller uh, may allow them to do that um, compared to their sibling and so i get them thinking about the giraffe if you if you will uh, the taller giraffes being born of those offspring can survive by uh, reaching the most leaves, the highest leaves. And those that don't, don't make it and uh, may perish. And so I like, it's a, it's a bit of a dark competition story, but you know, not everything can survive. Not everything that is born can survive. And so those that are best fit, uh, those have those adaptations to survive in that environment, do so. And those that don't, uh, don't. And so uh, those that live move on to make the next generation with those adaptations. So I, I usually try to put it in terms of uh, siblings and, and other classmates, if you will, uh, in terms of competition. Mm. I hope. hope that helps, Rebecca. Yes, it does. I can, I can envision the children saying, like picking the shortest kid in the room and saying, you're out. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and then, yeah. then make sure the shortest kid knows that he can reach some stuff maybe the tallest kid can't, right? So they, they might work both ways. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, well, thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you for calling. Um, yeah, a lot of people are have, especially teachers, have challenges to face. 
I yeah. think so, and I, I hope this book helps them a little bit. It's uh, meant for a general reader, so hopefully some school teachers can, can glean some stuff out of there for, for their classrooms. All right, let's see how many more questions we can get in. Let's go to Nathan in Springfield, Missouri. Hi, Nathan. Nathan, are you there? Yes. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm actually going to switch my question up a little bit just because it, I think we've already answered the one that I had initially. Um, the With the science of epigenetics and all of the new research that's coming out, um, historically I've always been taught that evolution was kind of based on random genetic mutations. However, whenever you take into account epigenetics and how much the environment uh, really does sway those mutations. Has that affected your research? And when, when looking back, uh, kind of rolling back the timeline and, and looking at some of these uh, major mutations that have led to very, very successful species? Um, for me, uh, epigenetics is especially important, not just for my work, but I have identical twins. So like whenever I see... Explain, could, the, um, can I interrupt <laughs> and just sure. explain yeah. for our audience what epigenetics is? Yeah. So epigenetics is... Uh, many of the non-heritable changes that happen. Um, so if somebody's a smoker, they may pass down uh, to their uh, next generation um, uh, changes, environmentally induced differences. Uh, so it's how your environment and DNA are interplay, that interplay is epigenetics. So it's not just reading the DNA, it's how the environment and the genetic, your genes are uh, uh, working together to produce different proteins or to produce different uh, mm -hmm. behaviors, for instance. So it's it's sort of this uh, cloud around your your DNA that how it's being read can be uh, um, determined by the environment in part. And so um, epigenetics is extremely important. It explains like why uh, if I put one of my identicals growing up in you know middle class American family versus one growing up um, maybe uh, in a poor family in India will look very different, right? Just how their environment is impacting how their DNA is being read. But I would say, you know, the heritable changes are, are still uh, largely genetic. And so although mutations can happen everywhere, um, the ones that are passed down in the egg and sperm are the ones that matter mm -hmm. for heredity. But epigenetics is certainly something that we're learning more and more about, and, and their power is incredible in, in transforming how we act and, and uh, might explain a lot more than, than even we know mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking about uh, evolution with the Prasanta Chakrabarti, author of Explaining Life uh, Through Evolution. Uh, we've talked about natural selection what about unnatural selection and I'm, I'm talking about here humans breeding domesticated animals to have certain traits are we playing a hand in evolution here sure uh darwin starts actually origin of species with two uh, kind of boring chapters on, <laughs> on pigeons uh, and domestic uh breeding of them because he wants to show that artificial selection which people understand better, and that's the breeding of different breeds of, of pigeons or dogs, uh, is the same thing that's happening in nature. But uh, to your question of how, you know, how are we impacting the world? Well, we're also not just using artificial selection from breeding, but we'll start using CRISPR, these gene editing tools, and, and how that will change mm. the, how evolution works. That's a, a big open question that we're still mm -hmm. learning 
uh, how we're doing that now. Interesting question. Uh, tweet coming in from Flavio. He says, how music became so important? Is it involved in evolution? I mean, every community has it. Yeah, for, for human evolution and, and questions like that, it's it seems like, you know, if we backtrack into, you know, what makes us uh, successful, maybe what makes us successful versus species that lived with us, like the Neanderthals and, and Homo naledi and other species, maybe it is we survived because we had these communities and maybe those com communities had music and had a, uh, religious inclinations or some beliefs that they were shared that allowed us to survive when other human groups didn't, you know, other human species didn't. And so, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, you know, it's true. Everybody makes music and everybody seems to enjoy music. Maybe that's part of our, our evolution, but uh, it's a little bit beyond my, my scope of expertise there, too. Well, let's talk about the the limits of your scope of expertise <laughs> and, and not questioning, you know, how good you're at it. But what do you want to know that you don't know now? And what would it take to find that out? Oh, the biggest question in evolutionary biology is about the origins of life. And, you know, we know life evolved and life has a common ancestor. Um, but what happened in those steps where we go from Maybe that was something that was very, very simple, a few uh, protein-building amino acids um, to something that could self-replicate. Was it RNA? Was it something like a virus with ribosomes? Was it something extraterrestrial? You mm. know, those early origins of life on Earth, uh, that's the mystery of mysteries, as Darwin put it. You know, that's the real uh, part that we're trying to better understand. And we can reconstruct some things, but it happened a long time ago, and most of that memory is erased from uh, the fossil record. So that's still the biggest question and the one I'd love to know the answer to. The, the primordial soup yeah. that you're, you're talking about. I, I, I guess if you, if you understand the primordial soup here, you might be able to understand it on some other planet or moon or something like that. Yeah, I'm glad you said moon because that's my bet too. It's like something like uh, one of some of Jupiter's moons that have more water than we do. Yeah, we, yep. You and Arthur C. Clarke. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for taking time to be with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. Prasanta Chakrabarty, author of Explaining Life Through Evolution, on sale next week. He's curator of fishes at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. And if you want to read an excerpt from the book, head to our website, sciencefriday.com/slash. Evolution. One more thing before we go, we want to say goodbye to Gretchen Smale, our Newmark J Corps audience intern for the summer. She was such a pleasure to work with these last few months, and we wish her the best of her luck in her journalism career. If you missed any part of the program, you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. And of course, we're active all week on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us. Yes, the old classic way. Remember email? SciFry at sciencefriday.com. Send us feedback. Tell us what you'd like us to cover. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.